this. So I got my nails done for Whitney's wedding. Oh, shit. Look how effing long they are. It's like an inch, it feels like. I usually get them stubby. And the girl was laughing at me when I was like, shorter, shorter, shorter. She's like, no, this is beautiful. I'm like, no, shorter. And yeah. she was like, no, this is great. You're gonna, it's gonna be great. But now I can't use my hands. I tried to clip the pinky by myself. That's not too bad. Well, but the thing that sucks is like, it looks super chunky. I would just file it down. Well, that's what I did. It's fine. Did I just... you use sandpaper? Oh, I used a nail file. Oh. <laughs> Why would you use sandpaper? I feel like it'd go by faster. <laughs> like an orbital sand around my nails. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, welcome everybody. Oh, hi. This is Haunt and Cold with April. And um, Katie. Sorry, I'll say that. And Wait. Katie. And Katie. Let's do that again. Okay. <laughs> welcome to Haunt and Cold with April. Do I say and Katie? Or do I say and? <laughs> Okay, hold on. Let's try. <laughs> okay. Welcome to Haunt and Cold with April and Katie. <laughs> Nailed it. Finally. Jeez. <laughs> so, we're sisters. Shit, this fly. Why? Well, I feel like we just take a fly with us on every trip we Guess do. what? I was actually harassed by a bee today. Yeah? And I killed it. How did it feel? <laughs> it, well, it died. <laughs> Well, not how did it feel when it... I meant, how did you feel about it going away? Good. Do you want to know how I killed it? Huh. I just like... Okay, so I was setting up in here. And there was a bee that kept coming around, swarming around the microphone while I was trying to like screw it on. And I kept yelling at it. I'm like, get out of my car. And it wouldn't. So I started like throwing shit at it. Wouldn't leave. Then, so I'm sure the neighbors were thinking I'm crazy. So I'm like, get out of my car! Oh, it's gone! It's gone! It's gone! Oh, good, 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 good. Okay. Sorry. So yeah, yeah there was this bee, and yeah. then finally, like, I opened my door, the passenger door, and I was yelling at it to get out of my car, and I'm like, seriously, get out! And then it was, like, about to get out, and then I was like, ah! And then I shut the door, and then it got squished in the door. In the door? In the door. Wow. And I took a video of it, because I knew you wouldn't believe me, because I'm like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure, and I'm like, I just assassinated this with the door. Dang. I'll have to show you later. What? I thought there was a bug on my face. I do want to say thank you to, what was it called? The Salty... Oh, um, Jay and Nick from the Salty Speculation Podcast. Thanks, guys. Yeah, they, they gave us a huge shout-out, like, on day, what, three? Yeah. After we premiered, and we got a ton of Insta, insta followers. <laughs> how Is did you... How you word it? Yeah, Insta... Oh. Well, in, I don't know, Instagram followers? Yeah. We got quite the a few. Insta followed us. But thank you for the shout out. I was so surprised. Yeah. Um, I can't believe we got so many listeners after the first week. I really expected only our family to listen and Tori. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's really all I expected. Yeah. So I was really surprised to have like so much support right after we launched. I also felt so much anxiety because I, I'm awkward. I don't know how to talk about things that I'm doing <laughs> and not sound like a weirdo, but I don't know. It just seemed really cool to have so many people be like, yeah, this is awesome. Yeah. Especially when we were so nervous. We're like, are, are we, are we good at this? <laughs> we don't know. And we're probably still not, but it's also, it's just humbling and nice. And I just hope, hope people stick around. You yeah. Know? I mean, if you don't, if you hate us and that's why you listen, that's great too, but just, just keep listening. Yeah. You don't have to tell us that you hate us though, because that'll be a real bummer. Yeah. Don't. Keep it inside. <laughs> yeah. Keep it. Just, just 
internalize your feelings. I yes. don't know. Yes, internalize those ones specifically. Yeah. We don't want to hear about I it. I want nothing to do with your hatred. Only, please. only the good stuff, please. Because literally, I will panic because it's happened already. Oh, yeah, it's and already it's, happened. We've, uh, we're learning, okay? <laughs> we're learning, and we're, we're learning how this all works, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like just with words <laughs> you're about to like piss people off that's so true um especially when you have a microphone yeah yeah when you're recording what you say you're gonna piss off somebody yeah i can't please everybody no can't but i mean you know hey but how how you doing good i quit my job yeah so my last day is in two weeks i gave them a 30-day notice it is such a weight off my shoulders and I'm just so happy like I've been losing weight which is weird because I feel like it means I'm like losing my stress weight and my depression weight yeah it's crazy how much that adds on you know yeah like I I don't know just simply not happy with with what you're doing yeah and it it just took up a lot of my emotions and I couldn't let it go after the end of the work day so it's just healthier, and though I may not have, like, a solid 9 to 5, I have freelancing, and I'm starting a home decor business and the yeah. podcast, and so I'm keeping busy and doing things, but, yeah, I'm excited. I am can't even explain how it feels. Like, it's so nice. And you guys should seriously check out her stuff. Um, go to her Instagram, and you'll see it there, I'm pretty sure, called Dahlia Boutique. Yeah, it's Dahlia Boutique. Dot Utah or dot UT. I can't remember. I, I don't know. <laughs> no, I have to tell you, though. I'm not great at like like <clears throat> advertising myself because I am so critical of everything that I do. It's everything hard. I can't. Nothing's good enough for me to share with people, and so <laughs> that's why this podcast. Like you're doing everything because I would probably never <laughs> release anything because I'd be like, oh, I don't know. Like I said, something <laughs> stupid, so I can't do it. But I'm always saying something stupid. I literally, everything that comes out of my mouth sounds like a dumbass but thing hey, to say. At least we're consistent. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be us if we weren't stupid with every conversation, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, if, if you were to sit down with us, you would, you would just get this. Yeah. And we're so, just, it is what it is, so. It's not for show, it's real. But we're showing it to you, I guess. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. Been better? I've been better. <laughs> I, I've been sick this last week, and I just feel like crap, but a lot better today. That was good. A lot better today. Hey, guess what? Yeah. Remember the object thing? Yeah. Do you see it? It's oh. that weird thing behind my seat. <laughs> Is it this? Yeah. <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> oh. Oh my gosh, this is so funny. Okay. I don't even know how to explain <laughs> it. Uh, so there's a wood horse. Oh, it's actually a donkey. This is Jackass Calvary. Oh, okay. Jackass Calvary is written on this donkey um, with a braided hair. It's for a realistic effect. <laughs> and a queen bee. The is crown. this supposed to be a scene? Because um, then there's also a sign that says, One way, adventure, on the road again. And then a little suitcase. And then a basket that says queen bee. This is cute. And then the little the Reese's that are inside the little basket. That, Cold? Cold. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to eat it. Oh, good. I hoped you would. Sweet. I'm excited to hear what your story's about. Good. It's a long one, so. 
Okay, well, hold on. Let me eat this Reese's really fast with my freaking mile-long nails. While you do that, I'm going to eat some uh, trail mix. All right, I'm going to start my story. Okay. This is the story of Utah's first recognized serial killers. There's... Earth's multiples. Oh, no. References, Murderpedia, of course, ABC for the Justice Files, and Salt Lake Tribune. Okay. Okay. Are you ready? Um, no. <laughs> Buckle up and okay. take a seat. Check, check. Walter Kelbach, I think is how you say it. Kelbach? Kelbach. Oh, Kelbach. K-E-L. Walter Kelbach, 28, and Myron Lance, 25, had a history of getting into trouble with the law. They found together that they enjoyed inflicting pain on others that brought sexual gratification. Mm. This reached new fatal heights in December 1966. Did you say they're brothers? They're actually cousins. Cousins. And lovers. <gasps> <laughs> I wasn't going to tell you that they were lovers, but they were. Oh, no. I'm sorry, everybody. Okay continue okay so just warning you it gets a little i mean i'm not gonna go into super detail but just so you know there's like horrible things that happen okay. <laughs> like it's a murder podcast you guys i'm yeah. sorry but it happens okay i'm bracing myself <sighs> take a deep breath everyone go okay <sighs> december 17th 1966 families we're preparing for Christmas. Everyone's barely getting a TV. Some, uh -huh. most families don't have TVs. Right. So this all was freaking people the hell out because then they had the news accessible to them instead of, like, picture instead of radio. Got okay. it. Yeah. Okay. It's like the beginning of news. Black, casting. white. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Little knobby things on the Little side. Little knobs. And the, the box is huge and the screen is tiny. Okay. <laughs> right. So December 17th, 1966, Walter and Myron were under the influence of prescription medication and wine. They stopped at a gas station in Kearns, Utah, where 18-year-old Stefan Shea was working the night shift alone. Walter and Myron spontaneously drew weapons on him and robbed $147 from the till. Then things got worse. Oh, no. They forced Stefan into their station wagon, drove him into the desert. They ordered him to strip of his clothes and the pair took turns raping him. Oh. Afterward, they did a coin toss to see who would receive the honor of executing him. What? Kelbick won and plunged a knife into Stefan's chest five times. What? They left his body there and drove away. Oh my gosh. Yeah, sadistic. Yeah, <clears throat> do you ever get, like when you hear terrible stories like this, do you ever get like pains in your body? Yes. Of, like, whatever's happening. You're like, oh, my gosh, my chest hurts all of a sudden. Yeah, like, you know? Like, you just yeah, feel that it. happens You're like, to me all the time. Uh, and, like, when you watch those YouTube videos or whatever and someone, like, breaks their leg or whatever, I, like, cringe. My leg hurts. I can't. I can't. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then December 18th, the next day, the two kidnapped Michael Holtz from a Salt Lake City gas station he was working at. Wait, how much later was this? Just the day after. Oh, the day after. Okay, sorry. Yep. Um, Michael was also raped by both of the men and was forced to watch their coin flipping game to see which which of the two would be murdering him wow. afterwards. Lance won this time. 
and stabbed Michael twice in the chest with the same weapon used to kill Stefan. The police realized that the two crimes were connected and issued a citywide order that all gas stations should be closed at nightfall. Interviews with local Utah small store owners, they made sure to keep two workers at all times and everyone was armed with guns in case they needed to defend themselves. Wow. So in the 60s, you know, like they're they're like, yeah, we're loaded up with guns. There will be two people at the store at all times just in case. So everyone was like preparing and like people who were at home watching these interviews on TV were freaking out because now they can see the news and it oh. was just scary. A couple days later, December 21st, the men flagged down a taxi driver, Grant Strong, and directed him to the Salt Lake City Airport. On the way, Grant didn't feel comfortable with his passengers and made a quick pit stop at the taxi barn to talk to his supervisor about how uncomfortable he was with the two men in his taxi. Did he say why? Uh, he just got weird vibes from him. I feel like in the time of Uber and, you know, Lyft and all of that, people have to, like, really be careful who they just let hop into their car. And if you don't feel comfortable, tell them to get the F out. Yeah. That's super smart of him to make a stop, though. Yeah. So, what... <laughs> when he talked to his supervisor, apparently they both decided that he would um, click his microphone transmitter twice if there was trouble so he's like okay if i click this twice something's wrong just in case i'm just being paranoid or whatever this is what i'll do if i'm in trouble and only a few moments later he double clicked the transmitter moments moments minutes leaving the taxi barn whoa um, at the time he flashed his signal is when Kelbuck had drawn a gun to the back of his skull demanding money Grant gave him all the cash he had, which is only $9. But obviously there was no interest in the robbery. Right. Police and other taxi drivers got to where the taxi was left behind and found Grant with the gun wound to his head. By the time the police got to the taxi, Lance and Kelbick were already on their way to the Lolly's Tavern, um, which was near the airport. I guess it was around 900 West and 400 South in Salt Lake City. Okay. It's not there today, but... Got it. And acting like if nothing had happened just moments before, actually 30 minutes before, uh, they just casually walked into this tavern. Kelbick was messing with the pinball machine. As they walked in, Lance walked up to James Sizemore, a 47-year-old Navy vet, and nonchalantly shot him in the head, then immediately ordered the manager of the tavern to empty the till. Lance got 300 bucks from the till, and the pair drew their pistols to the bartender and customers, killing Fred Lilly, who is 20 years old and shouldn't have even been in a bar because he was too young to drink, um, and Beverly Mace, 34 years old, and they casually started walking out of the bar. The bar manager pulled out his gun as they were leaving and shot at them, but they, he, they weren't hit. It just spooked them, and they ran to their car. In 1966, so the bartender at the tavern, Lloyd Graven, was interviewed by the Salt Lake City Tribune. Uh -huh. It was like sitting in a foxhole at the battlefront, Graven told the reporter. He turned on me and shot point blank. The concussion of the shot knocked me down. He leaned over the bar and shot at me lying on the floor. How he missed, I'll never know. Wow. Graven called the police and the roadblocks were set up throughout the county after the police were notified about the tavern shooting. At one roadblock in Parley's Canyon is where they stopped Kelbick and Lance. 
So this, these are quotes from the imposition of capital punishment hearing, 93rd Congress first session. And they have a bunch, like they're interviewing these guys and I wish like I could just read the whole thing to you and just take forever. But it's interviewing these guys and they're just like talking casually about what happened and why they did it. And it's like, it was no big deal. Ew, so just like the Lafferty brothers almost. Yeah. You know, it, where they're just like, no. Yeah, like, no, whatever. Like, I don't care. So, quote from Kelbach says, so he goes into lollies. And this is, like, his voice, so it's, like, they're typing it out exactly how he says it. Okay. We goes into lollies. There was a couple left, so there was just enough left to take care of the cartridges in his gun. So, what the heck? We're out of our mind anyway. Walking around in there is just like a zombie. If you've seen Frankenstein movie... How he walks in a trance and how he walks don't even know what he's doing and that can apply to us because there's just no feeling. Did they ever say if they were also mixing alcohol with with drugs for that crime as well? Uh, it only said for the first one. Oh. Their first murder they did was they were Jeez. under the influence, yeah. It just seems like they were out of their mind, just like he said. Yeah, like, but they're... And it just seems like, I, I just wonder if maybe just how they did it. They're like, okay, let's just take a bunch of drugs and I bet, I bet you anything wine. that entire time they were under the influence, but they were in the mindset where they just don't give, give a, a fuck about yeah. anybody. Right. What's happening, what they're doing to other people, they're just doing it because they want to. Um, okay. And then Lance said just after that, he said, but before that, to give you an idea of the way I felt... Even though I knew where I was and the time of year it all was, I had the feeling inside me, you know. I felt, I'll play Al Capone or something like this, you know, and I'll get them all, you know. And I had this honest feeling that even though I knew better that I was in the specific Roaring Twenty era, see. And in fact, I was using slang that they'd used back in them days, see, and ordered the beer and all this bullshit. So role-playing. So he's like, I'm Al Capone. This is the 20s, and I'm just doing whatever the hell I want. Like, he's just... What in the like, hell? I think they're playing a role. Or or maybe his subconscious is trying to play a role so that yeah. he doesn't feel the guilt behind it. Hmm. Or he has no guilt at all, and he's just like, oh, yeah, like, watch me. I'm, I'm this hotshot guy, and I'm, you know, I can do whatever I want to whoever I want, and I have no consequences or something i don't know either way either way it's nuts and they like they have this like um way of speaking that's like really that's so casual about what they just did he's like yeah you know like i mean this is just how i felt no big deal (laughs) it's just so weird to me they decided to shoot the place up after hearing that it was on the radio about the um, the taxi driver. Uh-huh. So it was 30 minutes later, right, when they got to the tavern. And they heard on the radio as they walk into the tavern about the taxi driver they just murdered. Yeah. And they're like, well, let's empty out these guns. We have enough people in here. We can we can take care of the bullets and the cartridges. So they, they knew they were going to go down. They just yeah. wanted to go down in a bigger way. Yeah, they're like, well, let's just take care of this you know oh like my like, gosh ugh. I hate it's that it's so it. weird how casual it is like I can't yeah. understand it. I can't wrap my brain around how they're just like oh, they this don't is no big any, deal any remorse at None. all yeah da, da, da. hold on oh in the ABC for 2019 article the justice files forensic and crime specialist Mitch Pillington teaches criminal justice at Weber State 
but focuses on serial killers, which I want to take my class. <laughs> right. <clears throat> Sorry, my throat. I had my own concert on the way to Katie's house. It's an hour away from me, and I my throat's dry. <laughs> Singing Britney Spears, and oh, yeah, Kelly Clarkson, uh, Evanescence, Paramore, any of it. Love it. Anyway, okay. So what? Um, he's uh, Pillington says. One of the pieces of this case that sets it apart from so many other cases is simply the rapid succession of the way the crimes were committed. Six people in five days. That's a lot of murder. It's stunning. It's a lot. So they like they went from zero to six people in five days, and it's just crazy how how fast that happened. Right. The two were charged with first-degree murder. A judge and jury needed little time to arrive at a guilty verdict and sentence them to death. However, the Supreme Court set aside capital punishment, and the pair were spared the supreme penalty of the law. Neither Kelbick or Lance have ever expressed any remorse. Lance actually coldly stated, I haven't any feelings towards the victims. And Kelbick added, I don't mind people getting hurt because I just like to watch it. Ugh, I wonder worst. if they're like trying to get on death row. You know, I don't know. I just feel like they just don't give a shit. Like no, I don't. They don't. Ugh, it's so weird to me <clears throat> that people like this exist, and I will never <laughs> understand. When they were um, charged with the murders, they were they got the death penalty. At the time, Lance chose firing squad. Lance chose firing squad, and Kelbick wanted to be hanged, but they're death sentence got overturned because of a supreme court like something about the death penalty not being the right ethical ethical yeah there yeah. we go got it but two years later kelvick and lance and some other inmates escaped from the utah state prison in 1968 well that's only a year later right <laughs> two years later two years. pillington said now it oh so pillington was the weaver state professor he says now it was limited to not just utah it was a nationwide panic you had this group of individuals violent individuals that were roaming the streets somewhere but within 24 hours the pair were caught in burley idaho um let's see oh here it is sorry in 1972 the u.s supreme court called the death penalty unconstitutional and they were sentenced to life in prison in prison and eligible for parole but the families of the victims eligible were eligible like, for parole. Eligible, yeah. Excuse me, right? They were just on the death row, and now they just got life in prison, but they could be out on parole. Oh my gosh! Tell me the families screamed. They they were so mortified. Um, Pillington said they were extremely upset and offended about that decision, which I would be too. Absolutely. The comments that they said, I don't mind people getting hurt because I just like to watch it. Pillington said that these comments would be what associate with a psychopath. Yes. In 1992, the two men were up for parole and appeared before a hearing with the Utah Board of Pardons. At the time, Kelbick was 53 years old and Lance was 51. Uh -huh. um, they had been in prison at that time for 26 years. The families were kind of freaked out and thought they were going to be paroled. Um, yeah, because that's still a pretty young age. Still caused damage. Yeah, at, in their 50s, they can still go off and repeat history, you know, together. Yeah. One of the fathers of the victim said, we lost a son. Our other children lost a brother. That loss has always been felt by all of us. The nightmare is always with us. But Lance knew better and was realistic. He said, 
Um, I don't see how you could ever let me out, Lance said in 1992. I think the hearing has been a waste of your time as well as mine. I see there is no possible way I'll ever be granted a release, and if I was in their shoes, I would feel the same way as they do. Okay, well, at least he's starting to, you know, look at it from the other perspective, even if he doesn't feel bad. Yeah, he's like, eh, like, this is a waste of our time. I know I'm never getting out, so yeah. don't put me through a hearing. Yeah, that's something, at least. Yeah. On that same day of the hearing, Kelbeck also went before the same hearing officer. He asked if there was anything he wanted to talk about. All he said was, no. Wow. So, for the families of the victims, it turned out to be the last time they would ever see Lance and Kelbeck. The mother of one of the victims says, we don't understand why they're not sorry. So, it's too bad they didn't carry out the death penalty from that point. It would have been, saved these families a lot of grief because every time it comes up, they live the nightmare again. So obviously their parole was denied and they would remain in prison for the rest of their lives. Kelbeck and Lance never did apologize to the families of the victims. Lance died of natural causes in 2010. In August 2018, Kelbeck also died of natural causes. He was 80 years old at the time of his death and had served about 51 years in prison. It was one of the longest running terms ever by a Utah prisoner. And that is the story of Utah's first serial killers. That's crazy. It's freaky though, because it's like, if you get two like-minded people that have the same effed up twisted brains, mm -hmm. you they somehow find each other. I mean, they were cousins. And so what did the families have to say? Like their family? The killer's family? Mm -hmm. Nothing. I don't see anything about it. Wow. I guess I wouldn't, I don't know if I would want to be publicly known. <laughs> I wouldn't want to. Ugh. Oh. But yeah, so there's, there's little information <clears throat> about these guys because it was in the 60s and I feel like there was a mix between like written journalism as well as like, you know, the news mm -hmm. uh, broadcasted journalism. Right. I feel like. Some information that you, they kept going between like five and six um, people who were murdered, mm. um, which ended up at six people, which would be Stephen Shea, who is 18, Michael Holtz, which they didn't have an age for him, Grant Strong, James Sizemore, 47, Beverly Mace, 34, and Fred Lilly, 20 years old. That's so sad. It is so sad. And it, you want to see a picture of him really fast? Yeah. They just look so scary. Did they ever say if these dudes had anything before that would have pointed in the direction of them wanting to kill people? Mm -hmm. like, they just had like a history of like trouble with the law, like robberies and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then they had S&M backgrounds, <laughs> mm -hmm. but they just went too far, I think, because they knew each other was, like, into that, they kind of went on to be worse than... Anyways, so this is... Oh. And we'll post pictures, but this is Walter. They look confused. This is Walter in 1966, but this is him in 2009. He still looks confused. Yeah, and then this is Lance. <laughs> and then that's him in 2009. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Gross. Yeah. We'll post pictures. We will. Good job on that story. I hated it. <laughs> <laughs>
I, I can see, I can I don't see know. why. It just sucks too when there's not too much information. Like it actually took me a really long time to find mm-hmm. where Walter ended up because it said he was in the Gunnison prison, mm-hmm. but I couldn't find him in there. But I couldn't find a death date for him, and I kept trying to look for his death certificate, and I couldn't find it. Oh. And but then one article by ABC for the Justice Files finally told me that he died in 2018. But I'm like, why was there not like a like no one said anything? No one said anything when they they did like a press release type thing when Lance died, but not when Kelvick died. That's weird. Like, why do you pick and choose? I know it's weird. Yeah. Well, are you ready for my story? Yep. Do you want to describe what's around us? We are at a, is this a hotel? It is a hotel. Oh, it says Utah Historic Site. Can't read that far away. But all right. I'll tell you about it. <laughs> it's a place. Oh, there's horses. There's horses. It looks like a little, like it kind of reminds me of like West Yellowstone. Never been to Yellowstone. Okay, so West Yellowstone's like a little like town surrounded by like the National Forest. Oh, cool. Um, so very like western-y. Yeah. This is kind of similar. Yeah, well, much smaller though. It's haunted. I believe it. Okay, are you ready for my story? Oh yeah. wait, wait, wait. So we have our EMF detector and our EVP recorder, and we're gonna just let them on. Let them be on while we're talking about this place and see what happens. Hopefully, it doesn't turn off by itself. Later. Oh, sorry. Let me hold it, and I'll just watch it. <gasps> okay. Yeah. It's up. So the top number is the... Is what we care about? Yeah, the bottom number is what we don't care about. Well, then why is it... I mean, we kind of care about it. That's the electric field, and then the other one is the magnetic field. So if you put it up to your phone, I bet it'll pick up Something. the electric part. Okay. Yeah. Okay, go ahead and tell your story. Okay, and I'm going to hit record on the EVP recorder. We're just going to see what we pick up, if anything. Yeah. You never know. I wish there was, like, a volume on that. Volume adjustment. Okay, okay. So, do you know where we are? Like, do you have any idea? I know that we're in between Saratoga Springs and Tooele. Yeah. By f- almost a five-mile pass. Mm-hmm. No, is that five mile over there? Yeah, we passed okay. five mile okay. to get here. Got it. We're just past five mile. We are at Camp Floyd. Camp Floyd. Camp Floyd. I've heard of that. Have you? Mm-hmm. What do you know about it? Nothing. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Well, you're going to know everything about it, because guess what? It's haunted, because this won't stop going. They say it's, like, crazy out here. Like, you never not get things. Okay, well, you guys are going to hear some beeping this entire time, because it's going insane. Like, the numbers are all over the place. What? Are, so, what's the highest number you've seen so far? 0. 0.5. Look at it, 0. 0.6. Well, maybe we should turn it off during the story, and then okay, maybe we'll, we'll do, like, a thing... Like, when I'm talking about the ghosts, we'll turn it back on. Okay, because they're driving me nuts. Okay, so, ready? Mm-hmm. I shortened my notes by two pages. It was 11, and then it went down to 9. What font size? <laughs> I kept the font size the same, but... I put mine up to 12, because I can't read. <laughs> Mine's at 11, so... <laughs> but I shortened it. That's okay, just <laughs> go. two pages. Okay, so Camp Floyd was a military camp that at one point held one-third of the entire U.S. Army. One-third? One-third of the entire U.S. Army was here. Wow. At one point. Um, but then Where? this place... In tents? Well, not tents. Um, they built, like, adobe buildings and stuff. Um, yeah. Like little apartments? 
like little buildings. Okay. <laughs> like, I'll get there. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. It's like, it's not here anymore because it got deserted by 1861 when the military had to leave to go fight the civil war. So they were here for three years before they had to go fight back East. Okay. So we're going to talk about how they even got here in the first place. And there's a lot of history behind it. So this is your warning that if you don't want to hear about the Utah history, like, like with Brigham Young and the U S government and all of that, like if that upsets you, just don't listen to this. Stop now. It's a lot, and I'm trying to stay neutral, and I'm trying to give both sides of the story, but it's very much back and forth. Okay. A lot of, a lot of things. <sighs> okay. We're going to get Christmas canceled. <laughs> I already have. Yeah. So. No, I did. Well. So here's to Christmas. <laughs> okay. Okay. So let's go to the beginning. Our story actually begins back in Washington with a man named John M. Bernhissel, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. John M. Bernicell. Okay. So John was a representative for the LDS Church in Washington. So he was an ally, basically, between the LDS Church and the U.S. government. Um, But in the fall of 1850 in Washington, he urged the 13th president of the United States that the Mormons should be given the right to practice theodemocracy. I don't know what that is. So this is a, a term that Joseph Smith coined. And it's actually in the dictionary now. And Hmm. according to merriamwebster.com, theodemocracy is a community governed by the people according to a revealed will of deity. So basically, a church can govern themselves. That sounds like a not good idea. Yeah. So, but John M. Bernicell thought it was, and so he went to the 13th president, which was President Millard Fillmore, and said... George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, James Monroe, John Quincy Adams, Andrew Jackson... Martin Van Buren, William Harrison, John Tyler, James K. Polk, and Zachary Taylor, Millard Fillmore, Franklin Pierce. Yeah, Millard Fillmore? Yeah, Millard okay. Fillmore. <laughs> yeah. I, Franklin Pierce is the last one I know. Franklin Pierce? Then I like the one that goes, Grover Cleveland. <laughs> we gotta, you know what, I cannot find that song anywhere. I don't know if it really is real. I mean, we, we went to Oker Elementary, and that's where I learned that song. Mm-hmm. But I can only get halfway through it. Yeah. Uh, I know who the next president is because we're going to talk about him. But we'll bring from Pierce, but the one after him. We'll get okay. <laughs> Buchanan. And then after him was Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln, Andrew Jackson, Ulysses Grant. Oh, shit. You know. You I know don't know if that's I real life. I don't know if I just picked some I knew and put them in place. <laughs> well, wasn't there also a song about the prophets? Sometimes I'd get those mixed up. <laughs> Presidents and prophets. <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, I, I don't know who I'm, I don't know. Okay, let me get back to this. <laughs> so, <laughs> theodemocracy was basically where a community that had the same religion could govern themselves because they all okay. have the same interests, right? Okay. Um, by the way, I brought my other notes in case you have questions <laughs> okay. because I'm like, I had a lot of infos. I did cut a lot out because I'm like, she probably knows or doesn't care. So, if you have questions, you can ask. I don't know and I do care. So, how dare you cut your notes? <laughs> Well, that's why I brought them just in case. Okay, well, you're going to have to <laughs> I'm so unsure. append your story and just add more. Okay. So, <laughs> sort of surprisingly, President Fillmore granted this request partially. He named Brigham Young, who was the president of the LDS Church at the time, as governor of the Utah Territory. Okay. With this agreement, he established... Because he kept chasing all the others out. Not yet. We're getting there. Oh, that's okay. kind of okay, what... Okay, okay, yeah. okay, okay. 
I'm going to tell you about that. Okay. Remember how I talked about that in episode two and I was just like, oh, it's such a long story. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is the long story. Okay. So you're welcome. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to stop interrupting you now. It's okay. Uh, so he granted, you know, Brigham Young as governor. So with this agreement, he established a Supreme Court so that there will be laws being followed that they, and so that way they're not just making up rules. Because that was kind of the issue with a lot of the claims is that Brigham Young was here and just kind of doing whatever he wanted because there's no one else telling him that wasn't okay. He had all the power. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, he did. Exactly. So, he appointed a judge who was already Mormon and already lived in the in the Utah Territory, and his name was Judge Zarabubal Snow. It might be pronounced Zarubabel. Either way. Zarubabel? What's that demon's name? Um, Beelzebub. <laughs> it sounds like you're just flipping it around all the letters. Zarababel. They're brothers. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. <laughs> he appointed somebody who's already in the area and was Mormon as judge. And that was this dude. Okay. But he also was like, hey, we need someone outside of the bubble. You know? Okay. So he sent three more individuals from Washington who were non-Mormon to make up the Supreme Court. He sent Judge Perry Brokus. Judge Lemwell Bradenbury and Territorial Secretary Bruton Harris. While he was establishing these positions, President Fillmore also officially made Utah a territory. So it was all kind of wrapped up in a big bow. He's like, yep, you're governor, here's a court, and you're a territory. Good job. Have fun. And left them to their own devices. Huh? Yep. So the three arrived in the Utah Territory that next summer, so in 1851. It was later described that even though they were non-Mormon officials, they were greeted with open arms by the Mormons. The first who arrived was Judge Brokus, and he said when he arrived, they welcomed him with a banquet and dances. When Judge Bradenbury and Territorial Secretary Harris arrived, they were given a basket of fruit and a bottle of champagne. A professor from Weber State University wrote a book about the history of Camp Floyd and mentioned that the relationship between the Gentiles which are the non-Mormons. So between the Gentiles and the Mormons would typically follow predictable patterns where the Mormons are very open and friendly and cordial. And then after a bit, things go south. Okay. That's basically what happened with these three dudes that came from Washington. A lot of their disagreements were revolved around the practice of polygamy and that these government officials felt that Brigham Young was abusing his power without following constitutional law. Okay. Territorial Secretary Harris... He was sent to the Utah Territory to deliver the territorial seal, as well as $25,000 worth of gold. Jeez. And I used an inflation calculator. $25,000 worth of gold equals almost a million dollars today. Ooh. But Harris decided that he was not going to give Brigham Young this money, or this gold, I mean, um, because he discovered that Brigham Young conducted the census before he had arrived, which is a huge deal because that's his job to make sure it's, like, valid and accurate. And he wasn't going to redo it, but he was like, dude, you needed to wait for me. Like, that's not your job. Yeah. So he was like, I'm not giving you the seal, and I'm not giving you this gold. I'm going to take it back to Washington. Like, we're going to figure this out. Cause, like, Washington State or Washington, D.C.? Washington, D.C. Okay, because I always get confused. Where's the White House? <laughs> Washington, D.C. <laughs> that's where it is. <laughs> <laughs> Every house is none Washington well, State. Nowhere that I read said Washington D.C. It just said Washington. Does D.C. stand for District of Columbia? <laughs> Hold on. You know I don't know much. <laughs> Hold on, I want to know. District of Columbia. Listen, I cannot guarantee where this is, but they just said Washington. I'm gonna and guess Washington D.C. Yeah. Because that's where the White House was. That's our educated guess. <laughs> yeah, because they're like, I'm going to go to Washington to talk to the president. So <laughs> that's safe He wasn't say. in Seattle. <laughs> yeah. So. Okay, anyway. 
<laughs> I'm sorry. Where are we? Hold on, let me. What's the last thing you remember? Do you see? Oh, his Brigham Young. Oh yeah. Didn't get the seal. No, he did not. So Secretary Harris was like, I'm just going to not give this to you. And we'll see what the big man at the White House says about this. Shortly after their arrival, though, on July 24th, almost the entire community met in Big Cottonwood Canyon to celebrate the anniversary of them coming to the Salt Lake Valley. And this gathering is now a celebrated state holiday called Pioneer Day. Pioneer Day. (laughs) It's hamburger and hot dog day. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, April corrected it. <laughs> um, but that year, in 1851, when these dudes came to the territory, our dear friend Porter Rockwell and his colleagues Abraham O. Smoot and Judson Stoddard. <laughs> o. Oh, Smoot. It sounds like you're saying, oh, shoot. O. Oh, Smoot. O. Oh, Smoot. You're right. I'm going to start saying that now. Okay. They shared rumors that the U.S. Army was headed to the territory to take over and burn the Mormons out of their homes, just like what happened to them back in Missouri. So Porter just- Rockwell? Yeah. Was going to do this? Nope. He was up there just talking above the crowd saying, oh. This is going to happen. Yeah. Better your, watch out. Get your pitchforks. Oh, is this a cop? Be prepared. No. I don't think we're breaking a law. Are we? Maybe we are. I guess we'll find out. Can't I t- never know until he told me. <laughs> we're not trespassing. That's not a cop. That's just a person. And he has a cooler on his motorcycle. That's not a cop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the federal officers, um, they knew that these claims weren't true, that Porter Rockwell was he was like no they're not like we would know about it like we just came and you guys just got a new governor so yeah everything's fine <laughs> you guys are just being paranoid so they knew it wasn't true but Brigham Young he decided to give Judge Brokus an opportunity to speak to the members of the church at the semi-annual general conference that was held just a month later and his idea was like okay well if you say this isn't true how about you tell everybody at once just to settle everybody down so At first, Judge Brokus was able to calm the crowd by explaining that no army was coming for them, but then his attitude changed when he began lecturing the crowd about their lack of patriotism and why he believed polygamy was wrong. He spoke to the women directly about virtues, and the crowd eventually had enough, and Brokus was essentially booed off the stage. On general conference? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Can you imagine? Yeah. Boo! Get off the stage! <laughs> yeah. You suck! <laughs> Could you imagine if, like, he was supposed to be up there, too? <laughs> yeah. He just was not very good at public speaking. <laughs> That'd be me if I was to give a talk. I would just say conference. thank you. Like, thanks. Thanks for your time. <laughs> I did my best. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't want to be here either, so. <laughs> so after he was booed off stage, Brigham Young was able to settle the crowd again by explaining that Judge Brokers just took this opportunity to voice his opinions that weren't necessarily wanted. Which... Fair. Probably shouldn't have done that. So, but also, polygamy sucks. So. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Um, so by this time, as you can tell, the relationship between the government officials and the Mormons had turned rotten. Judge Brokus was beaten up a few times after getting into arguments with different members of the community. And by the end of September, the officials decided that their family, that them and their families could no longer stay in the Utah Territory out of fear of their own safety. Yeah, freaking chill out, people. Yeah. I mean, by letters, Brigham Young tried to repair the relationship before they left, but just days before they left, Brigham Young even tried to sue the government to get his $25,000 worth of gold back without success. <laughs> like, he tried to sue them before they left and be like, You can't take my money. So he's like, It's like, you broke the rules, dude. That doesn't yeah. mean. He's just like, I'm, I just need the gold to stay. You can go, but <laughs> right. get out of here. Yeah. Hmm. So. Brigham Young also wrote a strongly worded letter to President Fillmore defending the Mormons' patriotism and described hostility from the federal officials and that it wasn't the other way around. So it's definitely like a he said this, he said that 
this is what they're doing. No, they oh, did they're this. they're tattling to I mom know. and dad. Exactly. That's exactly what's happening. But when the three men and their families made it back to Washington, the White House Washington, <laughs> each of them gave a detailed account of what it was like living in the Utah Territory. At first, nothing really happened with these claims, and the three officials were essentially in trouble because they abandoned their posts, so to speak. Like, they were supposed to stay and, like, finish out their term. Well, what were they supposed to do? Get freaking harassed and murdered by the Mormon people? That's true. Especially if you don't have anybody to back you up. You know? Right, if you're supposed to, like, be there with your families, like, I would get the fuck out of there if I mm-hmm. felt we were in danger, so. Yeah, and I put it in these notes, but not these notes, but the the three officials, they were given the opportunity to go back to Utah. They're like, okay, you, get, you have one more chance. You can go back and try to finish out your term or whatever it's called, or you can resign and find a different job. And all of them refused to go back. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Sounds like Utah was a little hostile. Now these men are referred to as the runaways of 1851. Six years, two more runaway officials, and two elections later, President Buchanan became the 15th president of the United States. So we're jumping ahead. Fast okay. forwarding six years. Okay. President Buchanan did not do a very good job being president. Um, every article I could read, even just like on like the actual White House website, like the government website, the article, like the first paragraph will say, President Buchanan just did not understand the reality of the political issues that he was dealt with. Like he did not get it. Mm. <laughs> so there was a lot of issues with his presidency. I don't think I have really ever heard anything about his presidency, like ever. Yeah. But I don't. And nobody really talks about this, and you'll see why in the end, because it's just like, what just happened? Anyway, so President Buchanan, the issues that he was dealing with right when he became president was issues like slavery, um, because, again, this is right before the Civil War. So he had issues like slavery, an economy crisis, and, of course, the Mormon drama coming across his desk, and it was just constant. Hmm. President Buchanan was given word about the charges made by Judge William W. Drummond against the LDS Church. In Drummond's letter of resignation, he charged the LDS Church with murder, destruction of federal court records, harassment of federal officers, and slandering of the federal government. Judge Drummond recommended they replace Governor Young with someone who is non-Mormon and that they send in military aid just in case. But to put the icing on the cake... Brigham Young's term as governor was supposed to end three years prior. <laughs> yeah. He's just been like, oh, no one's going to notice. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what happened. That's funny. So um, learning about these issues out West, Buchanan made the quick decision that he was going to send a replacement governor named Alfred Cumming, as well as one third of the U.S. Army. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's excessive. I mean... <laughs> Yeah. So President Buchanan offered the job to several men, like to be the replacement governor. And that's kind of a big deal to be a governor of a whole territory. He offered this job to several people and Alfred Cumming was the only one who was like, I'll do it. The Did only he one not to know what was going on? Was he the guy in like the corner that just wasn't paying attention and he's just like, oh, I'll go on vacation. <laughs> I've never been to Utah. I heard the Mormons make great pie. Let's go there. They do make great pie. Actually, Marie Callender's was the only pie I've really liked, so I take it back. President Buchanan made this quick decision, right? He was like, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. And he just became president. Like, this was, like, one of the first things he did. And people were like, (laughs) are you sure? (laughs) A third of the army. Get out there. Put those Mormons in check. Yes. And at the time, the army was in Kansas dealing with slavery stuff. And he was like, no, no, no. Go go fight the Mormons. They probably 
probably should have stayed. Oh wait, what side were they on? I don't. I don't know. I didn't do that deep dive. Well, let's just let's just listen to what happened. <laughs> I'm not okay. kidding. I'm not gonna. <laughs> let's stick to this story, <laughs> okay? Because I can't. We can't jump into that. <laughs> no. So uh, Porter Rockwell, remember him, and our friend Abraham O. Smoot, Smooty. They were in Missouri at this time when they got word. And they got word that the military was on the move to, to the Utah Territory, so they made quick arrangements to travel as quickly as possible to warn Brigham Young that this was actually Sorry. happening this time. <laughs> I can't edit that out. <laughs> but, <laughs> it's fine. I think I burped earlier, too. It's just, I've spent too much time away from people. I have no manners. <laughs> right. So, yeah, they made quick arrangements to head to Utah to warn Brigham Young that this is actually happening this time. Because, remember, they made those claims before. They were like, you know... The military is coming to burn us down. Oh, yeah. Okay. The two made it back to the Salt Lake Valley and told Young what was going on. And it's possible that the news that they shared wasn't totally translated well because Brigham Young went into a complete panic. Fearing the worst, here is a list of everything that he did in response to the news that Mr. Rockwell and Smoot shared. There are 10 things on this list, and it's dramatic. Okay. So they made plans to burn their homes and crops. What? Uh-huh. Yeah. That makes no rational sense to me. Like, they're planning on basically deserting their homes. They're like, oh, we'll just burn it down and our crops. It's called a scorch earth policy. I looked at it. It's in these notes. Oh. <laughs> um, so it's kind of like a, a military strategy. Like, if you're going to desert your town, to burn it to the ground so it's not usable by the army. Okay. I guess. Or by what the enemy. What a waste of food. And yeah, and time. And Anyway, yeah, so that's the first thing he did. <laughs> they made plans to burn their homes and crops. They began stockpiling food. They trained women and older children how to fight in case of an unexpected invasion. They began manufacturing more weapons and ammunition. Brigham Young tried to convince the surrounding native tribes to join them and to support them in the possible battle ahead. Most of them declined, which, okay. shocker. Yeah. Um... Just given the history. Right. Now you want us to help, help you. you keep the land? Yeah. Hmm. That doesn't make sense. Nope. The Mormons who lived in California were asked to leave their settlements and join the main body of the church. You know, so Brigham Young can grow his numbers. Brigham Young activated a Mormon militia in Illinois called the Nauvoo Legion. He asked Mormon members to harass federal officers to, quote, buy them time. And it's like, so you're telling your people to go get in trouble to get you out of trouble? That doesn't sound like a good leader to me. No. So, number nine. <laughs> the Mormons also built two fortifications, one in Echo Canyon and one in Weber Canyon. They believed the U.S. Army would come through these canyons as they were the biggest and easiest passages from the east at the time. With these fortifications, they were preparing for an ambush attack sometime during the harsh winter. So they dug deep trenches and dammed the nearby streams so they can dry the riverbeds. They were basically preparing for war yeah. against the U.S. Army. Number 10. By August 5th of 1857, Brigham Young declared martial law. Wow. Yeah. Way to abuse your power, man. Yeah. So, to put it simply, the Beehive State was disturbed, and Young was preparing for a fight with the U.S. Army. Good luck. <laughs> Fun fact. Do you know why Utah is called the Beehive State? A lot of effing bees. <laughs> You know, after today, <laughs> I would say so. But no, that's not why. Oh. According to infobloom.com, it's a metaphor to describe how hard the early settlers worked and their industriousness. 
there's like a big beehive on our state flag and that's why just was Brigham Young the queen bee he was the queen bee that's so Young declared martial law and the funny thing is is that no one really followed it or cared <laughs> oh and let me actually read to you some of the quotes from so in his proclamation that he dispersed among the community it said quote for the last 25 years, we have trusted the officials of the government, from constables and justices to judges, governors, and presidents, only to be scorned, held in derision, insulted, and betrayed. Our houses have been plundered, burned, and crops laid waste, our men butchered while under the pledged faith of the government for their safety, and our families driven out of their homes to find shelter in the barren wilderness, and that protection amongst hostile savages, which were denied them in the boasted abodes of Christianity and civilization. Hold on. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot there. It sounds like he's just like angrily writing this down. Like it doesn't oh, yeah. even sound like he's like a political authority figure. or figure. It's not like thing. professional. Yeah, it's like he's angrily writing this down like, oh, they're so... To his parents? Yeah. Yeah. A week or two after he declared martial law, another character pops in. And his name is U.S. Army Captain Van Vliet. Vliet was a homie. Because apparently he helped the Mormons in Iowa, so Young trusted him. And Vliet carried a letter from General Harney to Young explaining that the troops were headed to the Utah Territory and his people needed to make arrangements to accommodate them. Nowhere in this letter did it describe why they were coming, and it didn't even mention Young's replacement. So this made Young feel even more suspicious of their intentions. Because he's mm -hmm. like, okay, so you sent me this letter, but where's the other one? Right. Like, why aren't you guys giving me the full story here? So... To be fair, that would be really scary. Unsettling. It would yeah. be. So I, I get it. Well, but, but also he's been governor for longer than he should have been. So True. And also, too, like he heard this from Vliet after he made all of his Weird decisions. Things. So I guess I just made it worse. <laughs> Vliet tried to explain to Young that no one was coming to suppress them or arrest them or even invade them. He explained that there will be a replacement governor to help divide the church and state affairs and that the army was coming to make sure that the laws were being followed. Mm. While Vliet was in town, he decided to go to church on Sunday, and so that way he can get a feel for the community, their intentions and their feelings, and kind of get their side of it. Mm -hmm. He later recounted that many members were completely terrified. When they were praying, they prayed for protection from the, quote, invader. So basically, the members of the church were like freaking the fuck out they were and no matter how he tried to calm them no one was taking him seriously well it's because their leader was reacting that way you know yeah so so Vliet just could not convince them otherwise he was mm -hmm. like there's like they aren't gonna listen to me so but Vliet said you know what I'm gonna go back to the army in the east and I'm gonna go explain to them that you guys are fine like you're not gonna you know like if like it's, it's if you're okay. gonna follow the rules we'll leave you alone yeah right exactly he's like I'm gonna go try and like Put out some fires, and so we'll see if we can get the U.S. Army to not come to the territory. Mm -hmm. So that's what he did. He went east and met up with the Army and explained that Young was preparing for evacuation and declared martial law. He also let the generals know where the two fortifications were and warned them of a possible ambush attack from the Nauvoo Legion. So he gave away all their secrets. <laughs> he went and he was like, they're fine, but also here's like what they're up to. Yeah. Um, the day after Bliette left to go east, and three days after the horrific event of the Mountain Meadows Massacre, where the Mormon militia, aka the Nauvoo Legion, 
disguised as natives, ambushed and slaughtered 120 men, women, and children traveling through Utah to California. So right that's after. That's a whole story in its own. Yes, yeah, so we'll cover that eventually. And that's why I wanted to cover this story, too, because I think it's going to help explain other stories. Yeah. Like, what was happening. So right after this happened, right after Vliet left, Young felt that he didn't make himself totally clear with that first proclamation for martial law, so he decided to whip up a second one. And this a second martial law? A second martial law. Like, only a month. Because the first one went so well. Right. Yeah. And he was like, well, if people don't listen to me now, then how are we going to take over the U.S. Army? So I need to really get these guys yeah. hunkered down and ready to fight for me. And not only that, but like, doesn't it kind of make it seem like he also was making it seem like, listen, this massacre happened. Like, that's what I'm capable of. Mm. That's kind of where my head was going. So I'm like, this was right after it happened. People were just getting word about it. And he's like, oh, martial law again. You hmm. know, I would be terrified if I lived here. Yeah at the time. That just makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> so yeah, he whipped up a second proclamation and it was pretty much identical to the first one, but this time people heard him loud and clear. And he even sent a messenger to deliver his proclamation to the US Army and it arrived shortly after Vliet showed up claiming that the Mormons were afraid and all that stuff. So it was like, oh, how afraid are they? Right. Because he's, because in the proclamation, I didn't quote this part, but like it even says in there, like no one who has any weapons is allowed into the territory. And if any armed people are mm -hmm. to be like gonzo. Okay. So it was definitely a threat to the U.S. Army because he was saying like back off or else, you know? Yeah. This did not go over well with President Buchanan. <laughs> After reading Young's proclamation and especially noting the part about threatening the U.S. Army, the Mormons were officially in rebellion and now the U.S. Army had fire under their butt to get to Utah to stop the madness. As the army made their way from Kansas to Wyoming, by the end of September, they were attacked and ambushed several times by the Nauvoo Legion. Thousands of pounds of supplies were burned and destroyed along the way uh, by the Mormon militia. In fact, a man named Lot Smith and our friend Porter Rockwell kept a close eye on the movement of the army and figured out that they were headed for Fort Bridger in Wyoming. So they got there before the army could and they burned the place to the ground. The fort? Fort Bridger. Like, it was basically where the army was going to set up camp for the winter and like, you know, make sure their livestock's healthy, all that stuff, and they just burned it. Mm -hmm. So Colonel Alexander of the U.S. Army, he was nicknamed Old Granny, was fed up with these raids and he mm. was feeling a little bit desperate. So... He gathered a hundred men and a hundred donkeys and called themselves the Jackass Cavalry. Yes. <laughs> I know. That's funny. And I was like, yeah, go. <laughs> they found Smith, Rockwell, and company on the morning of October 15th and shot about 30 bullets at them just to send a message to leave them the F alone. No one was killed in this attack, but a horse was grazed. He was, I think he was okay. He was just grazed. Just, yeah, just wounded. Colonel Alexander returned to the rest of his troops and told them since they were avoiding the fortification in Echo Canyon, it would be safest for them to travel along the Bear River to get to the Salt Lake Valley. So they began their journey, but they were quickly stopped by a nasty blizzard that forced them to turn back. Thankfully, when they turned back, they met up with Colonel Albert Sidney Johnston. So Johnston took over the leadership of the combined troops and made the decision that the harsh winter conditions in the Rocky Mountains was a death trap in and of itself. So they established Camp Scott near the ruins of, of what was Fort Bridger. Camp Scott became the rendezvous spot for more U.S. Army troops and their numbers kept growing until the ice began to melt. Now remember back in, oh, you know what? I skipped one thing. 
back in August when Brigham Young was doing all those things, like his, do, yeah, all those things. I forgot to mention one more thing that he did was wrote he wrote a letter to someone named Thomas King asking for help. So he asked for his help, and in the meantime, so from August to, I guess, winter, uh, Kane met with President Buchanan regarding the letter from Young, and Buchanan agreed to let Kane become the negotiator between the Mormons and the U.S. Army. It was very unofficial, though. And later, okay. there's so many articles about this guy because people are like, did he help or did he not help? And it's like, yeah, he helped, but, like, he just wasn't given credit because it was a super unofficial mission, you know? So he was the negotiator, meaning he was the one doing messages back and forth, but wasn't Porter Rockwell doing that? Porter Rockwell was doing that, but he wasn't an ally of the U.S. Army. Oh, I see. He was just a guy that was, like, just, hearing through the grapevine and then telling Brigham Young something. He's just a professional gossiper. Yes. Porter Rockwell is where the freaking Relief Society gets it. <laughs> <laughs> right? He was the first founding member. <laughs> so, um... So this dude, Thomas Kane, he shows up at Camp Scott and explains that Brigham Young is now open to accepting the new governor. He felt that stepping down as governor would help him focus more on his gospel work, but in exchange for accepting the new governor, he asked that he isn't escorted by the U.S. Army. And the Army was like, no. Like, you're not the governor anymore. Like, no. you've already been replaced, and the governor that is replacing you is with us. So he's the one making the decisions now. Right. But thanks for letting us in. <laughs> but know? Brigham Young's like, um, I want the power still. Right. I mean, I hold power within myself, <laughs> so you have to listen to me because I feel like you need to. And the <laughs> army's like, you're not getting the point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that was a no-go. Long story short, the army was allowed peaceful passage through the canyons into the Salt Lake Valley. President Buchanan pardoned the LDS Church for treason and rebellion. Although when the army arrived in the Salt Lake Valley in June, they didn't expect to see all of the homes and crops burned to ashes. What a waste of, like... Yeah. <sighs> Turns wow. out, Young still had a bit of distrust. On March 28th of 1858, Young implemented a scorched earth policy. So yeah. that's what he said. He's like, all right, everybody, you're burning everything to the ground and we're moving south. So they moved into what's now the Utah County Valley, just south of Salt Lake Valley. Okay. And they set up a new settlement there just like two months before the U.S. Army showed up. And I guess they just, the Army, they went from Salt Lake Valley to here, right? And we are about 50 miles southwest of Salt Lake. Yeah. So literally as they marched by, they saw... The new settlement. The new settlement. And they're like... Nice try. We found you. <laughs> yeah, like, okay. You didn't go very far. Right. That's so funny. So they, they came here and they settled here in Frogtown. 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 Why would you name it Frogtown? I don't know. It actually is now Fairfield. Okay. It used to be called Frogtown. I just couldn't not mention that. <laughs> so when the U.S. Army got here, all that was here was a small settlement. A guy named John Carson and his brothers and a few other families settled here about three years prior and called it Frogtown. So almost overnight, Frogtown became a rip-roaring western army town. Mm. The population went from about five families to 7,000 people. Whoa. Yeah. They literally had all hands on deck to build whatever they needed, including 17 saloons. <laughs> I mean, you know. John Carson decided that this would be a great opportunity to build the hotel for any travelers coming through. So he built the Stagecoach Inn. Aww. And it's a two-story adobe frame hotel, which, which still stands today. We're right in front of it. Right in front of it. <laughs> um, John was an elder of the LDS Church. And so he said, he's like, this is my hotel. And we're going to keep it classy here. No liquor and no round dancing. 
but square dancing is okay. No round dancing? No round dancing. Only square dancing. So that's what was approved in the LDS community. <laughs> you could only square dance. I thought that was really funny. I'm like, oh, they literally called it round dancing though? What's the difference? No twirling? Twerking? Well, <laughs> twerking in the 1800s. Yes. Can you imagine? They oh would probably gosh. call her a witch and burn her at the stake if she was twerking. Probably. <laughs> They're like, her butts have good seizure. <laughs> it must have a mind of its own. <laughs> it was beneficial to have this place as more of an uppity place, though, because they it actually ended up having actors and actresses stay here. Um, Ooh. Yeah, so while the army was here, some actors and actresses would stay here on the way to San Francisco. Really, while the army was here in the Utah Territory, they didn't face hardly any issues with the Mormons. There oh. was no, like, battle. There was no real issues. So Brigham Young was really just losing his mind for no reason, and they burned all of their homes and crops for literally no reason. And Buchanan also did it for no reason. Yeah. So they now call this Buchanan's Blunder is what this is called too. Or the Utah War, Buchanan's Blunder. Utah War and literally no war happened. Exactly. A lot of people speculate that uh, President Buchanan jumped the gun and he didn't want to investigate much of anything before making decisions. And because of that, the attention went towards the drama here in the West instead of focusing on the slavery drama in the East. Hmm. Let me just say that Abraham Lincoln was the next president in line and he certainly had a huge mess to clean up. Yeah. So bad news was coming from the east about the impending civil war, and gradually troops left Camp Floyd, and by the summer of 1861, so three years later, mm -hmm. only 18 families still lived here, and Camp Floyd was nothing but a cemetery. Nothing but a cemetery? <clears throat> yeah. They, I, I believe they destroyed all of the buildings before they left. Oh, they burned it? I don't know if they burned it. Maybe. I, I don't know that, but... Yeah, I'm pretty sure that they, like, destroyed whatever they weren't using. What's the point of doing that? Why not leave it up for right. it to be used for something else? Right. I agree. Like I real estate. Just be smart. Or, like, <laughs> if you need to come back out again, you have a place to stay. Yeah, why would you destroy everything? Although, I did read, it's not in here, but I did hear that, like, the buildings they were in were not structurally put together great uh, like they were made out of adobe and then like the roof was made out of like planks and then they would have three inches of mud to go over the planks and that's what they would use for like protection against the elements mm -hmm. and during the winter you know we can have like two feet of snow on top of the roof if not more and a lot of people were saying like during the winter like you just had mud falling from the ceiling constantly like it wasn't a great time here uh, it was not a great time okay yeah tear it down yeah, so a lot of people were like, eh, we don't really need this. You just, like, kick a corner and <laughs> oh, it just comes down. Seriously, though, probably. <laughs> yeah, so people just left and gradually it was, it was nothing but a cemetery. John Carson stayed and raised his family here in this inn. After John died, his wife and children operated the hotel until it became unprofitable and eventually closed its doors in 1947. Mm -hmm. Twelve years later, in 1959, it was donated to the Utah State Park and Recreation Commission in hopes that it would be preserved and turned into a museum. Is that a museum? And it was restored by <laughs> 1963, and it was opened and it opened its doors again to visitors. So now Camp Floyd consists of a stagecoach and museum and a cemetery. So yeah, it's a museum now. Um, let's talk about the ghosts. After the army left, like this town did grow. It did because there's a school, a schoolhouse just down the road, and it I think was built in like 190 something. Mm. I didn't do a whole lot of research on it because there wasn't much. It's just a schoolhouse. Mm. People just went to school there. 
And it's part of the museum now because they've restored it and made it look all cute and stuff. Yeah. So it's, okay. it's a historical place, but there's not really much to it. Let's talk about the inn first. This building itself is in an L shape. You can't tell from the front. No, it looks like a rectangle <laughs> to <Yeah>. me. <laughs> right here. So on the left side, it goes back. Oh, I see. Further. Okay. It's cute. Yeah. There's 14 rooms and only seven of them are bedrooms. I don't know what the other seven are for. And I looked, I just need to go take the tour, <laughs> I think is what it is. Yeah. So we're going to, we're going to do a tour. We'll figure it out. We'll, we'll One update. of these days. There are four fireplaces on the first floor. Right now, they're not operating. They're just for looks and for historical reasons. Mm -hmm. um, there's even a hole in the wall from an accidental gun mishap. I feel like that probably happened a lot, especially when you have 17 saloons in a <laughs> one small town. Seriously. <laughs> there's More probably holes than... everywhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. More um, saloons than bedrooms in a hotel. <laughs> yes, actually. There was a claim that someone was locked inside one of the rooms during an investigation here at this hotel. The staff agrees that there is definitely a presence on this property. Okay. Some people have reported seeing a misty-looking dress floating mid-air before vanishing to nothing. Ooh. People have heard footsteps, voices, and even singing in the hotel. Mm. Very active. And I was reading... So, outside the hotel, investigators have experienced being touched and or scratched. A lot of oh. people report seeing shadowy figures walking around the property. Another location that is supposedly haunted is the cemetery which has some really confusing history of its own, which you would think, why would a cemetery have history? Or That's confusing. confusing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I'll tell you. It's kind of like a, a one kind of yeah. story. Just people like... just die and you bury them in a one spot. Mm -hmm. It should be that simple. But when the army left in 1861, they reported that there were more than 80 burials in the cemetery. After a few decades, someone went back and realized that more than half of these names were confirmed that they were not people who died anywhere near this area and they were not even part of this war. <laughs> yeah, they're like random names. They weren't even... Here? No, not even here. Somewhere completely different at the time. And they're like, okay, but why would the army write their names down saying that they died here, right? That's weird. It's really weird. No one, still no one knows well, that, why. That is confusing. It's very <laughs> Yeah. Okay. In 2011, a 14-year-old named Andrew Murphy was trying to earn his Eagle Scout badge award thing. Mm -hmm. And... He decided to do an act of service here by assisting in removing the old grave markers and replacing them with 32 white markers that read unknown. Hmm. They used ground penetrating radar to find these 32 bodies, but they couldn't identify who was who. So to make things even more confusing, most of the bodies were, when they did this ground pen penetrating radar thing, they found that most of the bodies were clumped up in one corner of the lot. And then there was like randoms scattered. That sounds weird like it was what and you would think okay well maybe they just weren't soldiers then or something right but i did read in some of the other notes that a farmer nearby was digging up his field and found two soldiers bones where he was digging he's like oh put those back <laughs> you know Shoot. but it was <clears throat> way far away from where the other ones were so he didn't think it was going to be a problem and that's why they're like okay they were just really unorganized i'm oh, sorry it looked like that door was open it's not <sighs> sorry that scared the crap out of me. <laughs> Just the way that it shadows on it, it looks like it was like cracked open. I've been waiting for the curtains in these windows to like move and oh someone gosh, peek at you me. Imagine? I keep looking at them and just waiting for a face to show up and then I just shit my pants immediately. Oh man, we are so far away from home. Do not shit your pants. Don't. <laughs> I did have McDonald's earlier, so there's no promises. Okay. So yeah, this kid did this Eagle Scout thing and 
now there are 32 grave markers that say unknown and there's a plaque outside the cemetery with all of the names of the people that they think are here mm -hmm. and i went through this list okay. and i found out that it's really sad <laughs> i oh, mean no. death is sad well but like i don't know just reading about like how these men died and they're so far away from home yeah uh, and you know they don't have family i don't know i just i just felt bad for that's the hard thing about soldiers. Like, yeah, they're just away from home. Sometimes for war that doesn't need to be had. Exactly. I think that's why I feel so bad too. Cause it's like you didn't have to be here. Yeah. You didn't have to be here. None of you did. All of these uh, bodies that are in the cemetery are all men, and we believe that they were all a part of the U.S. Army. Okay. Nineteen of these men died of some sort of disease or illness. Mm. Including alcohol poisoning. That was oh. a common one. <laughs> 17 saloons living yeah. up to the... Exactly. I mean, but what else is there to do? They weren't fighting a war. They didn't have four-wheelers. <laughs> 11 of these deaths, the causes are unknown. It just says unknown. So who knows what happened. They just so died. They did. Accidental gun hole in their body? Maybe. Well, no, because I... Next one was four of them were accidental deaths. Oh. <laughs> so... Three of them were suicides, Aww. and there were four murders. Don't hear about one or two of the murders. Sure. Okay. So, so there was a 22-year-old who was murdered, mm -hmm. and his name was Ralph Pike. He was the first sergeant of the 10th Infantry, and he was assassinated in Salt Lake City. The person who did it, his name was Howard Orson Spencer. He was a Mormon youth. Apparently, months before this murder took place. Uh, Pike beat up Spencer and Pike was walking into the Salt Lake City courthouse like to address this crime when he was shot and killed by Spencer. Hmm. And Spencer escaped his capture and imprisonment. 29 years later, they finally went to trial about this murder and he was found not guilty. How? I don't know. Was the judge Mormon? I don't know. Yeah, I have no idea. But karma got him later because at an old age, he fell from a bridge and hit his head and died two hours later. That's sad, but... It is sad. <clears throat> but it's also, like, really frustrating and I'm sure that if his spirit was here... Like, first, he didn't have to be here. Right. Second, he was murdered. Third, the person who did it was found not guilty. Yeah. And no one is giving a shit. I'd be pretty upset. But I guess yeah. in, in heaven, maybe the, these things don't matter. Yeah. But who knows? Um. Anyway, so sounds have been heard nearby, outside. Like, people hear sounds, like the nearby residents. No one has taken these sounds seriously until about 2008 when the property or the museum opened up paranormal investigations. Uh, Mark Trotter, he's the park manager, and he was quoted on HeraldExtra.com saying, uh, or someone asked, do you believe in ghosts? And he believed, let me put it this way, I've seen some photographs I just can't explain. People have definitely gotten some things here. He says there are investigation groups who come out and they always come back because every time they come out, they always catch something. Um, I couldn't find any recording or photo evidence of this place mm -hmm. but we have a paranormal investigation here in a couple weeks <gasps> this is where we're going yes! fun mm -hmm. i was like oh, we gotta do it then yeah so that's where we're going sweet so i wanted to give everybody a heads up that we're gonna find out more about this hotel <laughs> and and obviously like if we get any evidence our plan is to share that on our patreon yeah we still have not set that up totally um we don't know what we're doing <laughs> it takes some time to learn <laughs> Yes. Um, but yeah, we're gonna we're gonna investigate this place and then any evidence that we get we're gonna share it and or just fun videos. I don't know. Yeah. Even if we don't get anything, we'll just share it for fun. Yeah. But. 
Exactly. And you guys can analyze it and see if you see anything or hear anything. Yeah. That's totally fine. But yeah, so we're going to do that in a couple weeks and then you guys will probably hear about it around Halloween time. Yeah. Because yeah, this yeah. comes out on October 17th and the next episode is coming out on October 31st. Sweet. And we're going to have a Bring Your Own Booze episode mm -hmm. coming out that day. Ooh. So yeah. This one's coming out next week. After that, we're going to have an episode, bring your own booze, and then on the Patreon, that should be up and running, and we should have our investigation stuff on there. Yeah. Also, from when we went to Kimberly and did a little investigation there, we'll definitely share some clips from that. We might have to do a little narrating for that one, though, because there's no video. That's so true. We forgot, but... I'll bring a GoPro. Yeah. Next weekend. Strap it to your forehead. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah that is a terribly long story of camp floyd it's like it's hard because you have to kind of give a full picture of what this place is yeah. it just is what it is it's a lot of drama with the locals it is a lot of drama and like it's just a shame that it was this big build-up for nothing yeah you know and like it just makes me feel bad for who lived here and then died here yeah because it's like what but i mean they would have died somewhere else eventually <laughs> that's true <laughs> that's true of who knows what yeah thank you for listening to us everybody yep make sure you like share like <laughs> listen like uh, listen like share mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We are not good. <laughs> no. This is one thing we gotta figure out one of these days is how we're gonna end these things because yeah. when we know, you'll know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Once it sounds like we know what we're doing, we've gotta figure it out. Until then, maybe it'll never happen. But that's all right. Yeah, that's the fun of the adventure. Is we don't know what we're doing, <laughs> no. and that's okay. Yep, you just have to suffer through it. And then come back, then come back next week and watch how we still don't know how we're what we're doing. Yeah, just watch this disaster happen. <laughs> it's like a car crash you can't look away from, you know. Yeah, that's how our mom explained what our podcast was to her. It's like a car crash you can't look away from. Yep, that's what she said. And we're like, yeah. thanks. <laughs> like we know, mom. <laughs> so proud. Oh yeah. At least we're on our side. I think we've gotten majority of the time it's been positive feedback. Not every episode is your cup of tea, and that's fine. That's so true. Okay. Well, I don't hey. know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll see you guys. This is coming out October 17th, and we will talk to you guys again on October 31st. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. <laughs>